Thank you for listening to the Cross Loganville podcast. We will continue our series Resolve. So we've been going through the series Resolve. Here, here, here's what I want you to hear, okay? So we've talked about having this fixed uh, purpose and a focus of the way we do life right out of the gate, Resolve. And really the simplest definition of Resolve would be this. It would be total surrender to the Lord. So when I talk about total surrender, I'm talking about yielding to Christ. That's the gospel. I want you to come to me. I want you to repent, place your faith and trust in me. This should be your resolve. So we're talking about here, Cindy, we're talking about yielding to. For a couple of weeks, I even built on that, and we talked about abiding in Christ. And the word abide means intimate communion and dependence. So, And now we're shifting just from this yielding to to making sure that we're hanging with. So, so abiding is all about hanging with the Lord. So I'm yielding to the Lord. Now I'm hanging with him. And the word conform means that we resemble him and literally we become like the Lord. So I'm yielding to, I'm hanging with and becoming like. That, that, I would write that down. That is really the progression of what God is wanting to bring in each and every one of our lives. Patrick Morley, many of our guys have been reading uh, through a, a book that he wrote years ago uh, called The Man in the Mirror. But Patrick Morley said this, the majority of people in America have adopted two values as their primary way to live. Listen to this, personal peace and affluence, which means the pursuit of happiness and just the acquisition of stuff drives most people today. If you look at our culture, you look at society at large, it's just, uh, what do you want in life? I just want to be happy. And I want to have wealth. And our generation, mine, was, I just want to be fat and rich, dude. <laughs> you ever heard that? And that, that was part of the thinking way back. Francis Schaeffer said this, for most people, for most people, I'm not telling you this is a strong, pure definition when it comes to personal peace, but here's the way most people define personal peace. Most people define personal peace as being left alone. Don't bother me with you. Don't trouble me with you. I don't want to hear about your troubles. I don't care if it's across the world, across the city, or across the street. Don't bother me. Just leave me alone. It would be like if most people were accurate, they would have a necklace around their neck that looked like 7 a.m. in a Ritz-Carlton that says, do not disturb. That's where most people live. Don't bother me. I don't want to hear it. I just want personal peace. And personal peace for me means just leave me alone. That's not peace. That's not the presence of peace. That is not the shalom that Jesus offered. And Schaefer goes on to talk about, uh, Francis Schaefer says that affluence for most people is having an overwhelming and ever-increasing prosperity in their life. So when you look at it today, Drew, it's like my life is made up of things and more things and all I want is stuff and more stuff. And success for most people is judged by material abundance. It's pretty shallow, is it not? Pretty shallow. So like I said last week, I want to be who I want to be and I want to do what I want to do and I want to have what I want to have because I'm entitled to that kind of life and God exists for the sole reason of making me happy and fat and wealthy that's why God exists, and that's the Western mindset today. And the co- conclusion is 
conclusion is really as we've established last week. And it's not biblical, but God exists for me. Here's my question to you. If religion and faith is such a big part of our lives in this church, and even in our culture at large, stay with me. If it's such a big thing to us, why is it having such little impact? 25 to 30% of Americans today claim to be evangelicals in word, in talk, not in walk. If so many people claim to be evangelicals and followers of Christ, then why is it having such little impact and influence in our society? Why is there so much turmoil? Why is there so much chaos? Once upon a time, the United States of America at least acknowledged and had as the some type of foundation some Christian principles and values that it did life by. Go back and look. Once upon a time, the, this whole thing of morality from a Christian perspective was important in our society. And so I'm 59. I look at some of my friends here that are much younger and some that are a few years older. But Sheila, Hazel, Claire, I mean, you girls, we grew up in a generation, and y'all did, that movies, television, books, music, and most entertainment acknowledged that there was morality. And so even when it came to language and sexual content in books, movies, music, it was pretty good. I remember my dad telling me that when Gone with the Wind came out and Clark Gable made that statement that, frankly, my dear, I don't give a... He's like, nobody had ever used a, a word like that on screen. I'm like, really? If somebody used the D word in a song today, we would think, man, they read King James. They're clean. <laughs> That's how corrupt and chaotic our culture is. I grew up in a time where stores were closed on Sunday. I grew up in a time where you didn't play Little League Baseball or soccer on Sunday. I grew up in a day where at least culture recognized Judeo-Christian principles and the Sabbath was honored. How about that? And the standard of morality has been eroding with aggression for quite a few years now. And it's almost like these last 40 plus years, it's been on steroids. You, in, you usher in back in the 60s, the Roe Wade and some of the stuff with Merrick Sangler and others, and you are starting to see an aggression of deterioration and rejection of God. Secular culture today does not respect Christian values any longer. And, and, and it's almost like if there was a verse... For culture today, it would be Galatians 5 where Paul goes, once upon a time you were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Once upon a time you acknowledged me. Once upon a time you did a pledge of allegiance and prayed. Once upon a time when you went to school, you could say I pledge allegiance to the flag. And you even knew what is called the Lord's Prayer, the model's prayer, the model prayer. And you would stand maybe even in a circle and say, Our Father who art in heaven. You would acknowledge God and respect the nation that you lived in. You were running so well. Once upon a time you went to school and the Gideons handed out Bibles. 
You were running so well, who hindered you? Where'd you come off the rails? Come on. He goes, it certainly isn't God that pulled you off the rails. He's the one that called you to freedom. The false teaching is spreading like yeast and a whole batch of dough. Once upon a time, you were running somewhat well. You acknowledged, even as a culture, there was a God. Once upon a time, y'all did not allow the killing of babies inside the womb. Once upon a time, y'all didn't let liquor stores stay open on. Y'all, a matter of fact, Cavity County I grew up in didn't even sell liquor. We had to go to Luthersville. That's where I had all my fellowship with my Baptist and Methodist friends back in the day. No. (laughs) But once upon a time, we were running well as a nation. Hear me. But false teaching has come in like a fox in a hen house, and there's been all this deterioration. Here's where I would go with you, and I'm going to build to get to Luke chapter 8 here. But the problem for me is the church has crawled in bed with the world. And the church shacked up and started sleeping with the world. So we, we, we've tried to bring this Christian worldview and shack up with this secular worldview. And the offspring is nothing more than cultural at best Christian and carnal at best Christian. Not biblical Christians. It's like a weak, watered-down version of the real thing. That's our culture right here. The offspring is, is ugly. And we've allowed it as culture. But the problem is a lot of churches have allowed it. See, cultural Christianity means that we pursue the God we want, not the God that is. Cultural Christianity means we want a God like our rich, drunk uncle who just gives us what we want when we want it. That's a twisted view of God, but for a lot of people, that's the way they want God to be. I got this rich uncle dude at the country club. Let's go hang with him. And and, and it's bad. Christian or cultural Christianity acknowledges a need for God, but on our own terms, not on God's terms. We, we, We like the God that we highlight and underline in the Bible, but we don't want the we don't want the rest of that God. We we want that God that we've been taught. Is, is kind of that rabbit's foot God. Oh, I can do all things through Christ and my God will supply all my needs. But we don't want that God that says you're going to suffer and that God that pours out wrath and judgment. We don't want, we don't want that God. So for so many that even attend church, we, we like that God that we highlight that makes us comfortable, but not the God that calls us to live a crucified life. And, and it's almost like we've told God, That you making me happy and wealthy is the reason you exist, and and that's who you're supposed to be in my life. Because you're a God of love, not a God of holiness. You're a God of tolerance, not a God of being absolute. That's the culture. Come on. We live in a culture where people have reduced the holiness of God. Oh, God is love. Just do what you want to do. Where's the holiness of God? We were saved and set apart by God to be holy. As he is holy. He's an absolute God. Culture says, no, he, he's apathetic and tolerant. And that's the culture we find ourselves living. I promise you, cultural Christianity 
has no power and has no potency to it. Cultural Christianity doesn't bring anything to the dance. It makes no impact or has very little influence on values of society. It's time for the church to rise up and move from being cultural Christians to all-in committed Christians. Because I can tell you when you study it, please, please hear me. When you study scripture, you're either a biblical Christian or you're lost. Cultural Christianity is a biblical contradiction. I promise you it is. And biblical Christianity is gospel-centered. It's not convenient-centered. The gospel means the good news. So if we said, what is the gospel? We're to be students and followers of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news. Well, I can tell you that the glory of God, glory means the sum of all of God's magnificent attributes have been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the gospel. That's the reason they call Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the four gospels because all they talk about is Jesus. Oh, this is when he was born. This is what he did. This is the miracles. This is what he called people the standard to live by. We go, that's good. So our God is a sovereign God. Sovereign means he's in full control. So God creates the worlds and everything that we see, right? And we go, that God is a powerful God. And in his goodness, he creates man. We established last week, he creates man in his likeness and in his image to resemble him and to reflect him to the world. Good. That good God gives man free will, choice. Man then violently disrupts the plan that God had. He sins and rebels against God, and the soul that sins will surely die because sin devastates and annihilates. But this good God, faithful God, kind God, would robe himself in flesh. And Jesus would become the incarnate God in flesh. God offered his son. This is something I wrote. I think it's so, I was trying to get my mind around the gospel of what Jesus did. Jesus became man. This is what I wrote. To live like we should and to die what we deserved. When Jesus came, what did he do? He came to live like we should have been living. But we jacked it up, alienated. He came to die what we deserved. And in his kindness and goodness, he lays himself down as a sacrificial lamb and he pours out his blood, the gospel. He overcomes death, hell, and the grave. And now he offers salvation and grace and forgiveness is a gift to those that would repent and receive him. Now, those who believe and receive him are used, or here's the word, they're, they're saved. That's the word we use. That, that, that person got saved means they got plugged out of hell and darkness and the light. They were rescued from a jacked up way of living, and now they've been transferred over here into the kingdom of light. People that repent, that believe and receive, are rescued from and delivered to God. Don't, 
don't miss this. This is where the Southern culture, I believe, has left you hanging. So we now desire, because we've been rescued from and delivered to, not to go through the motions and not just to say 75 minutes on a Sunday, that's legit. Our desire now, because we belong to, is to worship and walk and adore and give and serve and love God. That's why we got saved. If, if, if you think that the reason you got saved is that God just didn't want you going to hell, stop, stop. The reason you got saved is he wanted to pour heaven into you now. That's when the game changes. And for a lot of people, they got stuck over here. And, 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 and they haven't embraced biblical Christianity. It was cultural. Luke chapter 8, listen to this. Jesus told a story to a large crowd that had gathered to hear him. A farmer went out to plant a seed, and he scattered it across the field. And some of what he scattered fell on a footpath where it was stepped on and the birds ate it. Others, other seed fell among rocks. It began to grow, but the plant soon wilted and died for a lack of moisture. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up with it and choked off the tender plants. Still other seed fell on fertile soil. The seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as had been planted. Jesus then says, Jesus was great at telling stories and using parables, parables, earthly stories with heavenly meanings, okay? He's so good at this. He was master teacher and communicator. After he tells this, he goes, anyone, anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand this. Stay with me now. Anyone who has ears to hear. Four responses. Four Different groups he basically hits in this text. One, we would say they're, they're just non-Christian. Verse 12. So he tells this parable. He speaks for a few seconds, and then he comes back and gives explanation to the parable, starting in verse 12. I, I, the meaning of this parable is this. The seed is God's word. When I talk about the farmer went out to throw seed, I'm talking about God's word and the seed that fell on the footpath, footpath, represent those who hear only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. This person refuses to make a connection between hearing and believing, between hearing and implementing. This person probably has walked in church, been around church, we're talking 2022, the year in which we're living, They've been around it. They've heard it. They've kind of kicked back. They've acknowledged, oh, oh yeah, I, I, I hear it. But, but they don't have ears to really hear and listen and understand. Oh, yeah. Not me right now, brother. And, 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 and many of those people that I've met over the years, all, all, all four of these soils I've lived in them, Stranded in sin and refused to believe. 
I got like introduced to like this God concept in Jesus at the age of 13. You hear it? I hear it. Do you believe it? I would have told you, I believe, but I acknowledge, I refuse to believe because this is going to jack up, jack up some of my sin and flesh patterns I want to live out. I mean, if I really start to lean into this, I mean, it's going out and having a few beers with the boys and hooking up with a few chicks here and there and going out and jamming, man, at some of these clubs, this is going to mess me up. So I heard it, but I was calloused. And I would even attend occasionally. But my heart was hard. My heart wasn't open. And trying to throw the seed on my heart at that time was like trying to plant tomatoes in the desert. It wasn't going to work. It wasn't a seed issue. And it wasn't even the person carrying the seed. It was my heart. My heart was hard. And there's people I meet today, their hearts are hard. There's people I meet today. I've had people come up to me, and Steve Trailer, we know this, and as we've worked with so many lives over the years, but I've had people look at me and go, hey, hey, brother, I, I, I've got this rebellious, wild 24-year-old son. He's living like hell in sin. But I believe, I believe you, could, you could share with him. Have you shared with him? Yes. Have other people shared with him? Yes. So there's been other farmers sharing with him, throwing the seed of God's word. So you think I'm a miracle worker. You think I'm a miracle grow dude. <laughs> and I sit down with people and go, hey, are you sick of being sick? No, I'm not sick of being sick. Are you sick of living in sin? No. Share with him, brother. No, I'm going to share with you that his soil is hard. I mean, I can work and throw all my bag of seed with this dude, but he's living in Tucson right now in July. It's not going to happen. The soil's not fertile. And there's people, Drew, like that, and that was me. When I was 13, 14, 15, all the way into college, I would be like, man, I got a hard heart. Come on, go to church. I'd go to church. Hear it. Do you understand it? No, because I rejected it. I refused it. I ignored it. I was lost and I was apathetic. And our lostness varies. Is that you today? Jesus goes, that's people. And then he goes, what I would say is the cultural Christian in verse 13. The seeds that fell on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message. Ah, hear it. Receive it with joy. Oh, man, that's what I need. But since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while. Tim, I love this right here. And they fall away when they face temptation. It's a rocky soil right there, brother. It ain't desert hard clay, but it's rocky. I've been, I've been to Israel. And Jesus is hanging out with the guys probably somewhere around either Jerusalem, Galilee, wherever he's given his teaching, right? Sermon on the Mount, he, he oh, this is right around the Sermon on the Mount time. He, he was just north of, of the Sea of Galilee. I'm like, I've been there. And there's so much rocky soil. Even when we would drive, we were blown away with how much rock and rocky terrain there was in Israel. And, and, and there was so much limestone. And, and he's like, look at, look at this right here. That limestone is covered with like a quarter 
half an inch of dirt. And you go, oh, finally we got some dirt. You go over there and kick back a little bit and you're right back on limestone. He goes, that's a lot of people right there. They don't have any root system. They don't have any depth. They don't want any root system or depth. As soon as you start talking to that person about spiritual formation and giving and serving and loving and connecting and developing spiritual disciplines, they don't want no part of it. And we wonder sometimes, why did they fall away? They had no depth. It's like, man, I, 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 re, I received that. Jesus is talking about giving me eternal life. I don't want to go to hell. Jesus is talking about conforming me to be like him. Mm. And let me say this to you. This is going to be a very easy thing for you to digest. This is a very easy, popular statement that I'll make right here. It is false advertising to tell people all they have to do is pray a prayer and they can be born again and saved. Now, let me say, that's not a popular statement in our culture. Jesus never prayed the prayer. You show me one place in Scripture where Jesus prayed the prayer. You show me one place in Scripture where Jesus said, hey, all you got to do, heads bowed, eyes closed, just pray this prayer. And then you're good. He never taught that. It was a false sense of almost salvation for some people. I was taught that. Let me go out on the limb and tell you this. Prayer, beautiful gift, prayer doesn't save you. Faith in Jesus does. I prayed a prayer. But did you anchor your faith and belief in Jesus? Did God start a good work in your life? Even Jesus would go on to say, talking about this counterfeit faith, in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God. But only, I would circle words like this. This is where I got in my faith journey. When I was starting to move from this lost, bad, hardened soil to even getting right here, I, I was here. I was here when I was at Troy University, I promise you, still raising hell, drinking like a guppy, playing baseball. But I was acknowledging this God stuff and starting to go to a Bible study. And this, this, ah. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous sermons Jesus ever preached. I got right there and he goes, not everyone who says Lord, Lord, but only, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. God, I'm not doing your will, I'm doing my will. I'm not walking with you, I'm still into my will. You're telling me that I might go, Lord, Lord. And you say, depart, I, I didn't know you. Remember when Jesus said in John 10, 27, he goes, my sheep listen to my voice. My sheep. I know them and they follow me. Hold on. I would read these kind of passages when the Lord was breaking me down and I was getting at that place of total repentance and surrender. He goes, oh, let me tell you about my sheep. I'm like, okay, my sheep listen to my voice. I ain't listening to your voice. Matter of fact, I'm trying to ignore your voice because every time I hear your voice, it confronts me and convicts me. So I don't even want to really hear it, much less listen to it. So when you ask a lot of people, 
Hey, how's your time in the Word? I just don't have time to read. No, you're not going to make time to read because he says something. And you're like, hmm, ain't giving up that area of my life yet. I've been there. I've been there. I've been there. And can I tell you, that is a place of stable misery and defeat. I live there. Oh, that was a bad place to be. 2 Corinthians 13, the apostle Paul writes to that confused, carnal corrupted church and he goes examine yourselves listen listen examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine test yourselves and that's where God got me he's like you've got to examine yourself so you walked an aisle you prayed this prayer has there been any change in you Tim and I go no no, you've stroked a few checks and even shown up at a seminar, but did anything change in you? No. He goes, how's that working? You're not a believer. Your soil is still jacked up. You're a cultural counterfeit. Then he talks about the defeated Christian. Now, now, maybe this person was sincere, but he goes on to say, the seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. Oh, cares, riches, pleasures. And so they never grow into maturity. They stay defeated Christians. If they never grow into maturity, you would have to think, if he's saying they never grow into maturity, maybe, maybe they, the seed did take some root in them. But they've allowed the things of the world to choke it out and crowd it out. I, I still enjoy watching some mixed martial arts. And I'll watch it sometimes and I'm like, oh. That dude right there, man, his jujitsu is tough. He just tapped that dude out, choked him out. And I was watching it recently, and I'm like, people that allow cares, worries, pleasure, etc., to overtake them instead of the gospel. Bam, they're choked out. They're getting choked out. They're just laid out. They can't fight. They're getting choked out. And to me, this is the person who wants the benefits of the gospel, but they want to keep living in sin and living for self. So I, I, I'm going to allow what I want to drive how I do life. And he goes, it's not going to work. It's a heart issue. It's a soil issue. You're allowing all this other stuff to crowd out the seed. Let me go somewhere with you. There's many places I could go in this illustration here. But let me go somewhere with you. And I want you to think about this. I was reading over the last few weeks that American household debt hit a record $14.6 trillion in 2021. Now Steve and Drew, we've relaunched our financial peace class and many are going to sit in there trying to find some, some peace and freedom and some, some godly rhythms of how to handle m money and stewardship issues. Drew, 14, comma 6, followed by 11 zeros. I was looking at that number going, that's a crazy number. 14.6 trillion in debt. I'm like, the average American right now 
has over 90,000 in household debt. So when you start to look at consumer debt, credit card debt, personal loans, student loans, et cetera, et cetera, the average American right now, 18 and above, has about 90,000 of debt. Millennials, 24 to 39, they're at 87.5 of how much debt they've got already. How about that blistering Gen X group? They've only got 140,000 of debt that they're carrying around right now. How about that dope smoking, let's go to Woodstock boomer generation I came out of, $97,000 per household in that age group. How's that working for us? See, debt, and the sad thing is debt saturates those in the church because somebody told us that we should live the American dream instead of the, the Jesus gospel. Somewhere along the way, we were said, live the American dream. And we bought into it, which is really a satanic lie. And we spin without restraint. We have no boundaries and guardrails. And we get bogged down with all this debt. And we're consumed to acquire more. And we're never satisfied. And one of the translations, again, says, and the worries of the world choke out. Bam. Tap him out. The word of God. See, the seed is not the issue. It's getting our hearts in a place so that the soil of our heart can receive the purity of God's seed. God wants our hearts right. Everything in scripture points to the heart. And and that's it. We open up the word. The word, the seed wants to settle in your heart and bring about produce and profit and whatever, but we, 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 we've got hard hearts and we've got just a carnal heart or we've got, don't, don't miss it. We've got the cares and the worries and riches of the world and pleasure-seeking stuff that choke it out. And see, God throughout the pages of Scripture says, I love a generous giver. You need to tithe plus. I've called you to tithe plus. And we have to stop and go, do I honor God by tithing plus? Do I live a life of generosity? Am I radical in my giving to the kingdom of God? In Malachi chapter 3, out of the message, I love the way Peterson captures this. He goes, I love this. Listen to this. Malachi 3, starting in verse 8. Do honest people rob God? Honest? But you rob me day after day. You ask, uh, how have we robbed you, God? The tithe and the offering? That's how. And now you're under a curse, all of you, because you're robbing me. Listen to what he says. Bring your full tithe to the storehouse so there will be ample provisions. Tithe. Full tithe. If you make 100000 a full tithe would be minimally 10000 If you make 50000 you would tithe 5000 Bring the full tithe. What do I bring? I bring the first part and the best part to God. He goes, test me in this and see if I will not open up heaven itself to you and pour out blessings beyond your wildest dreams. He he goes, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want the soil of your heart to be so 
receptive to my seed. Well, Jesus never told that. That's Old Testament. No, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, uh, you do well to tithe, mint, come in and deal, but you're neglecting the weightier provisions of the law, meaning you're not extending compassion and mercy. He goes, you should do the tithe, but don't neglect loving people. So even Jesus spoke into it saying, no, that's the right thing to do, but do it with the right heart. And that's where the gospel comes in and says, I love a generous giver. So as followers of Jesus, this is what God is calling us to. Like if our soil is going to really produce fruit. So God calls us to put him first in everything. So it's like, why do believers, evangelicals, worship on Sunday? Because it is the first day of the week. What part of that day do we give God? We give him the first part of the day. So we start our week and that first day of the week by trying to come before the Lord and worship him in song and word and fellowship and and community and serve, that honors God. So when it comes to giving and tithing, we bring the first 10% and the best to God. Bring it to the storehouse. I had this conversation with a close friend this week, okay? And I had to get teaching on this years and years ago. Because I was playing baseball. I was like, well, I just give to all these other ministries. He goes, okay, but when you are in a local church, you give to the storehouse. I said, bring it to the storehouse. Your offerings are on top of that. I'm like, oh. And by the time Barb and I get married, we was like, okay, we always tie to the local storehouse. Why? Because that's what Jesus said do. Are you begging people for money? No, I'm telling you to get the condition of the heart right and get your soil right. Quit robbing God. If you rob God, you'll rob from me. The person, the one, the creator of all things that would make you in his image, if you would steal from him, take it, my weed eater ain't nothing for you. I mean, I'll ask Steve sometimes. I don't want to know numbers and amount. I'm like, does that dude give? Does he, does he tithe? <laughs> no. That dude must steal my truck, man. He's already stealing from God. If he ever comes into my house, he's going to have to clap his hands because if he stops, he might pick something up. Just clap, by the way, you're here. You're a clapper. You start tithing, man. I might start trusting you. If you ain't robbing God, you won't rob me. That's the truth. I would tell you, and this is not guilt and shame, but it's saying, even in this area right here, Drew, it's almost like we, and, and, and you've heard it because you guys do this financial teaching class. It is amazing how people posture their hearts in such a way that they justify stealing from God. And, and if you really get this right, it's not like we're giving God 10%. If you change one word, it will change your mindset. For me, it changed me years ago. Remember, I've been in all these jacked up soils. Brother, you got to give 10% to God. And I got coaching that finally said, hey, you're not giving him 10%. You're returning. Oh, I'm just returning. Yeah, he, he didn't say bring him 100, even 90, even 80. He said, you're, you're, just return 10% back to God. Oh, so that implies that the earth is the Lord's and he owns all this anyway. That's right. But if you start to think that it's you giving, then you're going to start to think you own it. See, you don't own it. 
That's when it started shifting in my heart, guys, years ago. Like I was 22, 23 years old, and I was like, okay, I got to get out of this being cultural, defeated, allowing the cares and the worries of the world to consume me. And I would tell you, go on our give up and just set it up and say, I, fa- I, I want to be faithful. Group four, he goes, in the seeds that fell, verse 15, on the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear, listen to this, all of them hear, hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. Biblical Christianity and people that are surrendered and yielded, abiding and becoming like, they don't live by their own ideas and agenda. The master maker, our teacher, God has spoken, and they live by understanding and applying God's word. That's how we live life now. It's like, okay, does God call me to live that way? He's coming to live that way. Biblical Christians allow the Holy Spirit to lead them in ways of peace. Biblical Christians trust Jesus and nothing else for salvation, for assurance. Steve, as we do life, it's like I'm trusting Jesus only. Uh, They obey because they love God. But just like I shared earlier with you, prayer doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. Faith in Jesus. Obedience will not save you. Faith in Jesus does. But see, when your faith is in Jesus, it leads you to pray. It leads you to obey. Faith in Jesus leads you to love and give and forgive, etc. So, listen to this. One of my, one of my favorite teachings uh, in the book of Revelation, when John is exiled out to Patmos, Okay, that's, that's where he's at when he writes a lot of this revelation. And God starts to show him things, and he's like, write all this down. So there's seven different churches he kind of speaks into or speaks to in Revelation 2 and 3. But in chapter 3, he gets to this church over here called Laodicea. And he writes this. He said, John, write to them and say, tell them, I know your deeds. Mm-hmm. I know you're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. Ah, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold. But you've reached the place where you go, I'm rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing, which is implying I don't need God. I don't need God's ways and God's saying. But you do not realize that you're wretched and you're pitiful and you're poor and you're blind and you're naked. You've reached the place where you have concluded you don't need God. And he uses all those adjectives, wretched, pitiful, poor. He goes, here's the problem with you, okay? I, I want to see the soil of your heart fertile and produce. Listen, listen to this. Laodicea was known for it having lukewarm water. There was a place called the Hierapolis with these hot springs. It was about 8 to 12 miles away from downtown, the business district of Laodicea. And these hot springs produce hot water. And there was another place, the sea, where they got the cold water from, and they would pump the colder water into Laodicea. Laodicea had money. They had business. They had a medical mecca. You know what Laodicea had that was jacked up? 
They had the worst aqueduct system in that modern world. And so when he's speaking to the church there, he goes, I wish you were hot or cold. And I heard people years ago say, well, hot means fired up for the Lord and cold means I'd rather you just be lost. No, no, that's not even close to what it means. What he's saying is, I wish you tasted like the source. I wish you were hot like the springs or I wish you were cold like the sea. I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you tasted like what you came from. But you have allowed your faulty aqueduct system that 8 or 10 miles, 12 miles by the time it gets to you. Oh, can't drink it lukewarm. And what he's saying, I believe, to us is we, if we're not careful, we allow the things of the world, worries, cares, pleasure, all this stuff, to, to mess up our aqueduct system. So the source, God, is wanting to do something in us, but we've become stagnant. We've stagnated the flow of God in our lives. And I believe, if anything, God is saying, clean up your soil today. Get your soil right. If you get the soil of your heart right, you watch me work. Even back to my tithing thing of returning back, God will do more with 90% than you will ever do with 100%. Matter of fact, God will make you think that it's 150% when you've got 90% doing it his way. He started blowing my mind going, watch me work. Here's my close. Is there a noticeable difference between the way you live and the way that lost pagan lives that you work with? that you live next door to? Does my life offer hope or confusion? There's a lot of people that attend church, oh, when you hang out with them, you go, rough one right there. It's okay if they're a brand new baby Christian. I'm talking about folks who've been around church for 30 years. I'm like, mm, that's rough right there. It's rough. I would say examine your life, examine the influences in your life, uh, examine your friends, examine what kind of worldview, ideology they have, what, what is their kind of philosophy of life. I would say for me, I'm watching what kind of entertainment, what kind of music, what kind of stuff I'm letting in, because all that stuff can crowd out the seed of God's word in my life. And, and I promise you, it doesn't matter where you're at today, you can become that fourth soil, that good, honest soil. I did. But I had to allow the Holy Spirit to break out his tiller on my heart. And when I was living over there, consumed with the cares and riches and pleasures and, and just trying to fit in, that was a rough way to live. And the Holy Spirit, when he came in and started disrupting and cleaning up the soil of my heart, Rachel Cashett changed your daddy. Changed it. So we need transformation. How? Body, soul, and spirit. But God always starts on the inside. The Holy Spirit comes into us when we repent and confess and surrender and yield to Christ. And spiritually, we're made alive. Why are we made alive? Because we were born with a body that was alive, but a soul that was all damaged and a spirit that was dead. But we're inside out. So our spirit was dead. Our soul was damaged even when we were born, even though the body was alive. And the body's done a lot of crazy things to try to find pleasure and fulfillment over the years. But all of a sudden, when that spirit comes alive and God awakens you, he starts to transform the soul. 
And so all of a sudden, the spirit starts to change the way you think, the way you feel, the way you process, which changes the body and the actions the body participates in. If you want to change, it always is going to have to start from the inside out. And so the seed of the gospel will change us. First Peter chapter 1 says, For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but is imperishable. You have been born again through the living and enduring Word of God. So the living and enduring Word of God, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. The Word of God is alive, we're told in Hebrews. So when we were born again, God goes, I want to put my Word in your heart. And so we position ourselves in such a way that we allow Him to do almost a living autopsy on the soil of our hearts to get our soil right where He says, now I can do a work in you. I can do a work in you. James 1.21 says, the word God has planted in your hearts has the power to save your soul. So seed, plant, all this stuff, I've planted it in you. What's required? Well, the, the word of God is alive just like the seed thrown out there. But it has to die, right? We have to die. But the key is it must be planted in right soil. In order for anything to grow, it's dependent upon the soil. And so once the soil gets right, the Word of God, when we start to read it with the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of us, it will start to clean up what was messed up in our lives. He starts to reform and re- totally transform our hearts, Drew. We've been through this. If we are satisfied with having a distorted soul, the, words, the seed's not going to penetrate us. The seed is thrown out there for, for this purpose. I want to see you grow and I want to see you mature. So growth and maturation is why the seed is given. And we have to stop and go, hmm, close. <sighs> kind of dirt am I today? I mean, God made you out of dirt, but you've got to stop and go. Speaking of the heart being soil, being dirt, what kind of dirt am I? Am I just hard dirt that rejects the seed? Have I bought into this counterfeit, just casual, cultural Christianity stuff? That, that, that's not what Jesus taught. Am I living a defeated life because I'm allowing all this stuff to choke out the word? Or am I now in a place where I'm living a productive life, fertile soil, where I can produce things into the glory of God? I would challenge you today to get your heart right. Jesus said, again, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. So when I started to treasure him more than I treasured this other stuff, it was amazing. Like, now, that's where your heart is. But your heart was in the wrong place. And our hearts get in the wrong place, and our hearts become calloused in the wrong place because we're not totally yielded and surrendered. 